So um, this is an interesting topic this morning because uh, this isn't mentioned in Scripture anywhere, but it's still celebrated by uh, tradition of the Jewish people. To be Shavat, as we learn from Haratz.com, tells us that the Bible didn't mention the holiday, but the holy man in the Middle Ages made sure it became a celebration resembling the Passover Seder. There's actually a Seder for Tubi Shivat. Tubi Shivat is a late addition to the Hebrew calendar. The holiday is nowhere in the Bible, but it first appears in the Mishnah, which would have it around the Second Temple era. Um, one of the, my sources, are all. I'm going to give you all of my sources here. Uh, if this thing is working, there it goes. Um, as far as books, one of the only books I really found that was really in-depth on this was this Trees, Earth, and Torah, which was a great uh, anthology of this, um, of this festival or this, this, uh, this holiday. It's entitled Growing to Bishvat, the Life Juice of the Tree of History. The author is Arthur Waskow, Trees, Earth, and Torah, and it's put out by JPS Publications. And this is one of the introductions in there that was pretty interesting. To Bishavat, the new year of the tree, has itself grown like a tree. It has sometimes sprung to life in joyful abandon, sometimes suffered centuries of winter, then sprung anew from what seems like a barren trunk, to flourish as a rich and fruitful festival. The delight of the, to the delight of the Jewish mystics and those who love the earth. There's been three great periods of this celebration, of this um, year of the tree. During the second temple period, when the date concerned an agrarian people's earth connection through the tithing of the fruit. It was a tithing time. Through the long history of rabbinic Judaism, during which the Jewish people were disconnected from any deep relationship with the land and from Tu Shavat, it survived only in wintry underground, barely observed and celebrated. And then the period beginning in the 16th century, with the settlement of the Kabbalist in the town of Zavat, or Safed, which is an English translation, during which there had been several waves of connection, of reconnection, of the Jewish people to the land of Israel, with the earthly aspects of our planet, and with Tu Shivat. The rabbis of the uh, Middle Ages there, from the years uh, 1100 to 1300, had reconnected us, the Kabbalist rabbis had reconnected us with this, with this celebration. Um, it is the year of the tree. My Jewish Learning Center gives us some, some good insight on time. Time, in its essence, is an unceasing flow on which human beings have imposed meaning with arbitrary divisions and markers, things like years, months, weeks, days, minutes, and seconds. These units of time serve as measures for human activity in education, commerce, leisure, agriculture, and religion. Jewish time grew out of God's imposition of order on the primeval chaos. First, God separated light from darkness, 
creating day and night. Then, as a reflection of God's cycle of creation and rest, the work week was differentiated from Shabbat. Later on, at the time of the Exodus, God mandated that the Israelites mark the new moon of Nisan, thereby establishing a monthly and yearly cycle. As the body of Jewish law developed, the Jewish calendar has served to demarcate both holiday observances and numerous time-bound obligations. To ensure that certain commandments were completed at their appointed times, four different Jewish New Years were established to provide boundaries and markers for these activities. For example, since the Israelites were required to contribute a tenth of the current year's produce, they had to know exactly when the current agricultural year began and when it ended. Um, in the Jewish Journal, it had a, an interesting thought on the sanctity of time, that time is more important than place. Rabbi um, Rene always says that Shabbat is a sanctity of time. This is, this is by a rabbi, Avi Weiss. The last two portions of the book of Exodus apply and repeat information found in previous pas passages in the Torah. In Parsha Vayachel, the tabernacle is constructed in its detail, following the prescriptions found in the portion of Terumah. In the por portion of Pikudai, the priestly garments are made again, following the details laid out earlier in the portion of Tetzaveh. Why is it that the Torah needs to repeat every detail when describing the making of the tabernacle and the garments? Wouldn't it have been enough for the Torah simply to say that the temple was constructed and the garments were made as God had commanded? Several reasons for the repetition can be suggested. First, the Torah may want to make the very point that the commands were followed in great detail Presenting the details of the law shows that nothing mandated by God was overlooked. Another possibility is that presenting the details again points to a loving involvement in the process. Each step in making the tabernacle and the garments was an expression of the love that Moses and the people felt towards God. But for me, the answer to this question may lie in the considerable considering of the sequence of events in the later part of Exodus, the portion of Terumah. Terumah deals with the command to make the tabernacle. Tetzaveh follows with the command of the priestly garments. Immediately following these portions, the importance of Shabbat is mentioned in the portion Kitiseh. In Judaism, there are two sanctities, the sanctity of place and the sanctity of time. As important as place may be, time is of greater importance. Perhaps then it can be suggested that the reason why the Torah repeats the commandments in details is to point out that Shabbat, the epitome of the sanctity of time, is even more important than the sanctity of space, which is represented by the tabernacle and the garments. In his book, Shabbat, the Shabbat, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Herschel, Heschel points out that the acquisition of space is an appropriate human quest. But life goes wrong when one spends all of his or her time 
to amass things. For to have more does not mean to be more. It is interesting to note that the incident that falls between the command of the implementation of the sin of the golden calf, the cherubim, which is the angelic forms atop the ark, were holy objects. The golden calf, which the Jews may have seen as a replacement, was a defiling of place. Precisely because of this perversion of the sanctity of space, the Torah deems it important to repeat the whole sequence, but to place Shabbat first so that its spirit will be infused in every detail of the construction of the tabernacle and the making of the priestly garments. This teaches that ultimately we are a people who carve out our empires in time and not in space. So interesting concept and it's true I mean the Shabbat is something you can't touch and see and smell but you know it's there and that's what's held the Jewish people together for all these centuries there are four Jewish New Year's that are that are specified in the part of the Mishnah that um, that specifies 15 Shabbat which is to be Shabbat the first one is the first of Tishri which is Rosh Hashanah the first of Teshri serves as, a, as the new year for several purposes. The best known being the new year for the silver ca civil calendar and the new year for seasons. Rosh Hashanah literally means head of the year. Jewish years are traditionally figured from creation. For example, this year is considered the 5,780th year from creation. With a new year beginning on the first of Teshri, Although Rosh Hashanah is not a well-defined holiday in the Torah, distinguished mostly as a day when the horn is sound, or the day of the shofar, in Numbers 29.1, the Talmud expanded its religious connotations to make it the Jewish New Year and the anniversary of creation. Rosh Hashanah 8a explains, For Rabbi Zera said, that Tishrei is considered the new year for years in relation to the seasons. And of this opinion, Rabbi Zira is in constance with the view of Rabbi Eleazar, who said that the world was created in Tishrei. In fact, the rabbis focused primarily on the creation of human beings. Without those perceptible, perceptive ability, the physical creation could not, would go unappreciated. Without human beings, there would be no appreciation of creation. As the beginning of the civil calendar, first the one Teshri is also considered the new year for measuring the reigns of foreign kings, necessary because legal documents were dated by the current year of a monarch's reign. Rather than me measuring a king's reign from the date he took office, first Teshri served as a standard anniversary marking the end of a full year of rule, even if that year had only been part of a year. The new year for setting the sabbatical, the sabbatical year during which land may not be cultivated is also the first of Teshri. The command for observing a sabbatical year appears in Leviticus 25, 2-5. When you enter the land that I assign to you, the land shall observe a Sabbath of the Lord. Six years you may sow your field, and six years you may prune your vineyard and gather in the yield. But in the seventh year... The land shall have a Sabbath of complete rest, a Sabbath of the Lord. 
You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. It shall be a year of complete rest for the land. Plowing and planting were forbidden from the first of Teshri of the seventh year in the sabbatical cycle, and the people were allowed to gather only what the land could produce on its own without cultivation. Similarly, the first of Teshri is the new year for setting the Jubilee year, the 50th year, following seven cycles of sabbatical years. Sowing was also forbidden during the Jubilee, but in addition, all indentured Israelis were allowed to return to their homes and all tenured land was to be returned to its original owners. The laws of the Jubilee required that all land sales in Palestine be considered leases, with the land cost comp computed in terms of the number of crop years remaining until the next Jubilee, which would begin on the first of Tishri. One Tishri is also the new year for figuring the yearly tithe, the Masur, Maaser, or 10% tax on vegetation and grains. The Levites and the priests were supported by these tithes because they did not own any land. The tithe for a particular year had to be paid with the produce from the same year, thus requiring a standard date to begin and end the fiscal year. Tithing involved three steps. The owner separated out the first tithe, a ma'asir rishon, and paid it to the Levites. The Levites then separated out one-tenth called the terumah for the priest. After separating, separating out the first tithe, the owner had to put aside a second tithe, a masir shini, for the remainder of it, from the remainder of his produce. In the first, second, fourth, and fifth years of the sabbatical cycle, the owner was required either to consume this tithe in Jerusalem or sell it and purchase food to be eaten in Jerusalem. In the third and sixth year, the owner distributed this second tithe to the poor as a ma'asur ani, which is, means tithe to the poor. The second year that's mentioned in the Mishnah was uh, 15 Shavat, which is what we are celebrating today, or we will be celebrating on the 15th of Shavat. The second new year is 15 Shavat. Most Jewish sources considered 15 Shavat as the new year both for designating fruits as orla, which means that is forbidden to eat because they've grown only during the first three years after a tree's planting, and for separating fruits for tithing. Some sources, however, considered one Teshri to be the year for orla, and the 15th of Shavat for tithing. This date was selected because most of the winter rains are over, it says in Rosh Hashanah 14a. The sap has begun to rise and the fruit has started to ripen. Fruits that have just begun to ripen from the blossoming stage up to the one-third of full growth are attributed to the previous year, whereas fruits that are more mature on the 15th of Shavat apply to the upcoming year. As with vegetables and grains, Fruits that budded during one fiscal year could not be used as ties on those that budded in another year. The 15th of Shabbat has become a minor holiday. To be Shabbat, on this day, it is customary to eat for the first time a fruit from the new season, particularly one that is typical of the land of Israel. And to say the Shehekanayu blessing in the Ashkenazic communities in Europe, 
it is customary to eat 15 kinds of fruit. The Sephardic mystics of Safad in the 16th century expanded to Bishivat in observance with a Seder. They actually have a Seder, and there's a book you can get that lays out the Seder, which is like a Haggadah. It is a Haggadah that lays out the Seder for um, to Bishivat. And it has a lot to do with eating fruit. The, the next new year of the four that was, it is mentioned in the Mishnah is one Nisan. The third Jewish year is one Nisan, which corresponds to the season of the redemption from Egypt and the birth of the Israelite nation. This particular national event defines the nature of the new year celebrated on one Nisan. The Torah's command that this month, Nisan, is for you the beginning of all months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tied all counting of the Jewish religious festivals to the exodus from Egypt. And this special religious counting system distinguished Israel from other nations. The first of Nisan is also the new year for the reigns of Jewish kings in line with the national emphasis of the season. The rending of houses and the counting involved in the prohibition against delaying the fulfillment of vows. When a person vows to dedicate an object to the sanctuary, he must fulfill a vow before three festivals, beginning with Passover, have passed. Nisan is also the due date for using the half-shekel contribution described on Shabbat Shekelim to purchase communal sacrifices for the temple. And obviously, Nisan, when you see in the Bible, all months count from Nisan. When you see first month in the Bible or third month or whatever, it's all counting from Nisan. The last of the four years that are listed in the Mishnah are one Elul. One Elul is the new year for the tithing of cattle. The tithe for cattle had to be made from cattle born in the same fiscal year between one Elul one year and one Elul the next year. This was all determined, especially the 15th of Shavat, there was an argument between two people. And those, the argument was actually between um, Halil and this, is, this one I've heard pronounced different ways. I think most people say Shammai, but in Hebrew that would actually, if you sound out the letters, say Shammai, Shammai. We'll go with Shammai. You know, one thing I'm bad about is following this little uh, um, PowerPoint, because I had all those years and stuff, and we skipped over all that. I do that every time. So, Hillel and Shammai. In the first century in Babylon was born Halil, later known as Halil the Elder. He migrated to the land of Israel to study and he worked as a woodcutter, eventually becoming the most influential force in Jewish life. Halil is said to, to have lived in such great poverty that he was sometimes unable to pay the admission fee to study Torah, and because of him, the fee was abolished. He was known for his kindness, gentleness, and his concern for humanity. One of his most famous sayings recorded in Perkei Avot, The Ethics of the Fathers, is, if I am not for myself, then who will be for me? And if I am only for myself, then what am I? And if not now, then when? The Hillel Organization, a network of Jewish college student organizations, 
is named for him. Hillel and his descendants established academies of learning and were the leaders of the Jewish community in the land of Israel for several centuries. The Hillel dynasty ended with the death of Hillel II in 365 CE. Hillel, the elder's friendly adversary, was Shammai, a native of the land of Israel, about whom little is known except that he was a builder known for the strictness of his views. He was reputed to be dar, quick-tempered, and impatient. Both lived during the reign of King Herod from 37 to 4 BCE, an oppressive period in Jewish history because of the Roman occupation of the land of Israel. Shammai was concerned that if Jews had, to, had too much contact with the Romans, the Jewish community would be weakened. And this attitude was reflected in his strict interpretation of Jewish law. Hillel did not share Shammai's fear and therefore was more liberal in his view of the law. Hillel was the more popular of the two scholars and he was chosen by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, to serve as president. While Hillel and Shammai themselves did not differ on a great many basic issues of Jewish law, their disciples often were in conflict. The Talmud records over 300 differences of opinion between Bet Hillel, the house of Hillel, and Bet Shammai, the house of Shammai. The rabbis of the Talmud generally sided with the rulings of the school of Hillel, although the sages believed that both views were valid. 16th century Kabbalist Rabbi Isaac Luray, the Ari, said that not only are both the words of the house of Shammai and the house of Hillel enduring on the conceptual level, but each has its time and place on the pragmatic level as well. In our present world, we follow the rulings of the house of Hillel. But in the era of Messiah, the majority opinion will shift to the favor of the house of Shammai, and their rulings will then be implemented. The Ari believed that in our present reality, where divine commandments must be imposed upon an imperfect world, the rulings of the house of Hillel represent the ultimate in conformity to the divine will, while the rulings of the house of Shammai represent an ideal that is too lofty for our present state, which is why we perceive them as stricter and more confining, and can only be realized on the conceptual level. In the era of the Messiah, however, the situation will be reversed. A perfected world will embrace the more exacting application of Torah and the laws that, express, that are expressed by the house of Shemi, while the Hillelian school interpretation will endure only conceptually. Halil's rulings are often based on concern for the welfare of the individual. For example, with regard to remarriage of an aguna whose husband is not known with certainty to be alive or dead, the view of Hillel and most of his colleagues was that she can remarry even on the basis of an indirect evidence of her husband's death. Bet Shemi, on the other hand, required that witnesses come forth with direct testimony before she was permitted to remarry. Another example of his leniency as compared to Shammai involves converts. Halil favored the admission of proselytes into Judaism even when they had made unreasonable demands, such as one did by demanding that the whole Torah be taught to him quickly while standing on one foot. Impossible. Hillel accepted this position as eligible for conversation, 
whereas Shammai dismissed him as not serious about Judaism. In the Mishnah, Shammai has the year of the trees beginning on the first of Shabbat, whereas Hillel has the year of beginning of the year of the trees beginning on the fifteenth of Shabbat. The Halakha in this case mostly follows Hillel. So Hillel won out, and that's why we have this on uh, the 15th. And there's a whole argument about that. You can research that whole thing. It can, you can spend hours on that one little topic. Kabad.org has um, this, this um, take on to be Shavat. From the talks of the Luviticer Lubavictor Rebbe, Rebbe, translated by Joseph Lobenstein. The 15th of Shabbat, Rosh Hashanah for Trees, teaches that to avoid spiritual death, a Jew must always remain attached to his source, Torah and Judaism, and continuously grow in his service to God. Such service should not be performed coldly, but from, from force of habit, but with warmth and with life. The 15th of the month of Shabbat is Rosh Hashanah of Trees. This has special significance for Jews, each of whom compared, are compared to a tree, as it is written in the Psalms. For a man is as a tree of the field. A tree begins from a seed. It grows, reaches maturity, yields fruit from its seeds and from other, as other trees grow, grow and they yield fruit. So too, the human, the human life cycle. Man begins from an embryo, grows, matures, and yields fruit which in the case of a Jew is Torah and mitzvot. And just as other trees eventually sprout forth from a tree's seeds, so one must endure that other Jews grow spiritually and yield their own fruit. When I use the word Jew, sometimes you, you need to think of it. I mean, we attach ourselves to the Jewish people, so, so take it as Jew slash believer when you hear that word. A Jew slash believer cannot rest content with his own spiritual harvest, but must bring others near to their heritage. A tree is, is part of the plant kingdom. Plants, unlike animals, die if uprooted from the earth. They exist and grow only when they continue to receive nourishment from their source. A believer, too, lives and grows spiritually only when connected to his source. Torah and the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is not enough that one once learned Torah and one once performed mitzvot. He must constantly receive nourishment from his roots or risk spiritual death. Rosh Hashanah for trees is celebrated by eating fruit. Specifically, it is customary to eat fruit, which is from the land of Israel. I have another slide. There we go. A land of wheat and barley, and vine and fig trees, and pomegranates. A land of olive trees, and honey and dates. Of these seven, two, wheat and barley, are grain. The other five are fruit. From wheat and barley, bread is made. And bread is the basic to a person's diet, a necessity for sustaining life. Fruit is eaten for pleasure. Torah is sometimes compared to bread and water, necessities, and sometimes wine, oil, and honey, foods for pleasure. The former refers to the revealed dimension of Torah, Talmud, Halakha, etc., because it, can, it must be studied by all Jews slash believers at all times under all circumstances.
The latter corresponds to the mystical part of Torah, for its study is not as obligatory to all Jews. In earlier generations, the study of the mystical realm was limited to a select few whose lofty spiritual stature rendered them capable of appreciating its profound value. That, however, was in earlier times. In recent generations, it has become obligatory for all Jews to learn the mystical realm of Torah. As Rabbi Shanur Zaman Ladi, the altar Rabbi, rules in his Shulchan Aruch, if you've ever heard of Shulchan, Shulchan Aruch. This change occurred because of the spiritual decline of the Jewish people over the generations. In the former years, Jewry was robust enough to need only bread and water to keep spiritually healthy. But as the spiritual health declined, bare necessities were not enough. A supplement to a Jew's diet was needed, food to give increased strength and vigor. That food is the study of the mystical realm of the fruit, which provides pleasure. Thus we find that from the time of Arizal on, it became a mitzvah of command and obligation to reveal the secrets of the hidden dimension of Torah. This receives added impetus with the founding of Kassidus, which is by this Baal Shem Tov, and reached its culmination in Kabad. Remember, this is all coming from Kabad here. Which made Kassidus available to all Jews as a disciplined intellectual approach to the service of God. The Kassidics is a sect of Jewish mystics found in Poland in about 1750. They were characterized by zeal and spirit for prayer, joy, and charity. The Kassidic movement taught Jews to serve God with love and joy rather than fear and trembling, to sing and dance rather than to cry and fast. What concerns God the most, the Baal Shem Tov would preach, is that you serve him with your heart. And that's one of the reasons I put this in here. The 15th of Shavuot is not a festival mandated by written law. As, for example, are Pesach, Shavuos, and Sukkot. Nor is it found in the oral law, unlike Hanukkah and Purim, which we celebrate. Each of, all of these things are called festivals, and all these ha things have special prayers recited. In the Mishnah, the 15th of Shavuot is mentioned as the Rosh Hashanah of trees, but there is no mentioning of it as a festival. Its celebration is merely a custom, a Jewish custom. Likewise, Megan Avraham rules, it is a custom to eat fruit on this day. Precisely because the fulfillment of something mentioned specifically in written or oral law is mandatory, it does not provide special pleasure for a Jew's soul. Now, I don't know if I agree with that or not, but, this, but, but keep, stay with me. A custom, on the other hand, is not as obligatory on a Jew, and his soul, therefore, has special pleasure in carrying it out. In slightly different words, a Jew-slash-believer's guide for conduct is the halakha, Jewish law which sets out basic minimum standards of fulfilling Torah and mitzvahs, commandments. A custom is an increase beyond that demanded by halakha. God, the giver of the Torah, receives special pleasure when a Jew-slash-believer conducts himself beyond its minimum requirements. And the knowledge that one has merited to provide pleasure for God automatically produces the greatest pleasure for a Jew. 
Fruit, as we've said, provides pleasure. Such the observation of the 15th of Shabbat is a custom. It is celebrated by eating, by eating fruit specifically for both customs and fruit are the idea of pleasure. There is a lesson in this for man's service for God. The observance of the 15th of Shabbat, a custom, teaches that the believer that his service should not remain limited to those matters which are absolutely mandatory or just required. We must constantly add to this service of God, thereby providing pleasure for both his creator and himself. No matter how lofty his present level, he cannot remain static. We must always rise higher. Mitzvot must not be performed routinely and coldly or from a force of habit. A believer must be involved so totally in Torah and mitzvot that his observance for them is pure pleasure. An example, the Jews after their exodus from Egypt ate manna, which possessed the miraculous property that one could choose that it had the taste of whatever food they desired. So too Torah mitzvot. They possess different types of pleasure represented by the different taste of the five fruits of which the land of Israel is blessed. One need but have the necessary desire and its fulfillment of Torah and mitzvot to be pleasurable in this action and not just routine. That is achieved through the study of Chassidus, which we have previously noted. It is the concept of pleasure. Chassidus brings warmth and vitality to the performance of one's mitzvahs, infusing new life, that, ensuring that one's Torah and mitzvahs will no longer be sterile. They will have a soul. A further aspect of this festival that is on the 15th of Shabbat is that the moon is at its fullest. The Jewish people are compared to the moon, and they are destined to be renewed like it. Thus, the different phases of the moon parallel and are reflected in believer's service to God. The full moon on the 15th of the month represents complete and full service to God. No matter how lofty a Jew's previous achievements on the previous days of the month, the 15th teaches he can and must do more. He must grow as the moon grows until his achievements are full and complete. When that service has been fully completed, the true and complete redemption will we'll be able to come. You know, it's interesting that of the five Jewish holidays, I mean, well, not all, there's more than five, but five of the Jewish holidays fall on the 15th of the month, the middle of the month, the middle of the Hebrew calendar. Um, the gematra of this word, to be Shavat, basically, two is, um, is made up of two letters, a vav and a tet. The tet has the gematria of nine, the vav has the gematria of six, and that gives it the number of 15. So uh, two just basically means 15, the Shabbat, the 15th of Shabbat. As we've noticed, not, it was not a Jewish festival. It, rather, it was marked as an important date for the Jewish farmers in ancient times. The Torah states, when you enter the land of Israel and plant any tree for food, you shall regard it fruit as forbidden. Three years it shall be forbidden to you not to be eaten. Leviticus 19.23. The fruit of the fourth year was to be offered to the priest in the temple as a gift of gratitude for the bounty of the land, and the fifth year fruit and all the subsequent fruit was finally for the farmer. 
This law, however, has raised the question of how farmers were to mark the birthday of the tree. The rabbis therefore established the 15th of the month of Shavuot as the general birthday for all trees, regarding, regardless of when they were actually planted. Fruit trees were awarded special status in the Torah because of their importance in sustaining life and as a symbol of God's divine favor. Even during the times of war, God warns the Israelites, when you are in war against a city you have besieged, it is a long time in order to capture it. You must not destroy its trees. Any trees of the field human to withdraw from into, into the besieged city, only trees that you know do not yield fruit or food may be destroyed. At a later time, the rabbis of the Talmud established the four new years, which we've talked about. So, um, I talked about how this got revived during the mid medieval times. In the medieval times from the year 1100 to the year 1300, the Kabbalists, which are the Jewish mystics, gave to Bishavat greater spiritual significance. Seeing in to Bishavat a vehicle for mystical ideas, the Kabbalists imbued to Bishavat with new religious significance, as well as created an elaborate new spiritual ritual, they created a Seder for it. According to Luranic Kabbalah, which is a form of mysticism studied by the students of that Rabbi Isaac Luria, all physical forms, including human beings, hide within them a spark of the divine presence. This is similar to some of the kinds of fruit or nuts which hide within them seeds of new life and potential growth. In Jewish mysticism, human actions can be released, can, can release those sparks and help increase God's presence in the world. On Tubi Shabbat, the Kabbalists would eat certain fruits associated with the land of Israel as a symbolic way of releasing those divine sparks. In modern times, Tubi Shabbat has become a symbol of both Zionist attachment to the land of Israel, as well as an example of Jewish sensitivity to the environment. Early Zionist settlers to Israel began planting new trees not only to restore the ecology of ancient Israel, but as a symbol of the renewed growth of the Jewish people returning to their ancestral homeland. While relatively few Jews continue to observe Kabbalistic Tubi Shabbat and the Seder that goes with it. Many American and European Jews observed this to be Shabbat by contributing money to the Jewish National Fund, an organization devoted to the reforest reforestation of Israel, reforesting Israel. For environmentalists, to be Shabbat is an ancient and authentic Jewish Earth Day that educates Jews about the Jewish traditions and the advocacy of responsible stewardship of God's creation as manifested in the ecological activism. Among them, contemporary versions of the Tu B'Shavat Seder emphasizing environmental concerns are gaining popularity. The celebration of Tu B'Shavat is the New Year of Trees, which is a minor Jewish holiday in modern times, serving as a tree planting festival and celebration. The holiday is believed to have been originated from an agricultural festival at the onset of spring and the new fiscal new year, as we've discussed. So let's talk about some of the fruits of um, 
the land of Israel. So I'm getting kind of running out of time a little bit here. The first one is wheat. The Hebrew word for wheat is kitah. It is important because of the bread which is produced out of it. The bread, food in general, is what is needed to sustain life in both the corporeal and the spiritual realms. Wheat corresponds to chesed, kindness, the first of the seven lower sifriot. The characteristic of chesed is an expansion to reach out and extend oneself toward others. Wheat likewise reflect, reflects the nourishing food of kindness and to this day remains our main sustaining food staple. According to the renowned rabbi and physician Mamamides, wheat strengthens the body and increases mother's milk, the ultimate nourishment and expression of chesed. Uh, Sifrot is like a list of ten attributes of God that the Kabbalists have come up with that, um, that we are to mimic or to, to uh, grab hold of. So they're comparing this fruit to the Sifriot. The next one is uh, Seorah, which is Hebrew for barley. In ancient times, barley was used as animal food and thereby represents strength and hard work. The livelihood of a person in ancient times was dependent on the livestock. Barley represents Gevurah, which is another one of the ten Seph wrote, which is restraint. That means restraint. And its characteristic is a contradiction, reduction, and setting of boundaries. This is reflected by each barley seed being enclosed in a strong hull. That's its boundary which remains intact even during threshing. Due to its contracting quality, barley is highly effective in reducing liquid when it's added to soup. A recent study by the FDA evidenced that barley reduces cholesterol and the risk of coronary disease. The third one is uh, gefen, which is the Hebrew word for grapevine. Its product, the fruit of the vine, is used for special events and celebrations and therefore stands for happiness. And wine to gladden the heart of man, it says in Psalms 104:15. Grapes grow in beautiful clusters and correspond to teferet, which is beauty. This trait is characterized by the balance between its different and sometimes contrary components. Since teferet, beauty, is the perfect balance between chesed, kindness, and gevurah, which is might. Grapes include both nourishing and eliminating qualities. Grape seed oil nourishes the skin, while also containing a very high content of antioxidants that help in eliminating what's known as free radicals. Grapes possess a diuretic quality, yet they are very nutritive and they're replete with vitamins A, B, and C, while also treating blood and energy deficiency. The fourth is te'inah, which is the Hebrew word for fig. Unlike other fruits, they have only one fruit-picking season. The fig tree ripens two or three times each year. Because of this unique feature, the fig stands for persistence. Figs correspond to netzach, 
which is the sefirot called endurance. It engenders longevity. The fig tree reflects everlasting fruitfulness as it is one of the longest periods of ripening, spanning more than three months. The Malbim, the 19th century Eastern European biblical commentator, explains that we need to watch the fig tree very carefully by picking its figs daily since they ripen one after the other. We actually have a fig tree out here. We actually have two fig trees out here, and, and we see that every year as the figs ripen. They're slow, slow to do it. You can go out there week after week and pick the figs. Likewise, we need to observe our teachers daily in order to glean the fruits of their wisdom. According to Mamamides, figs, grapes, and almonds are always the best fruits, whether fresh or dried. Mamamides, as we said, whose trade was a physician, also taught that figs alleviate constipation, which is one of the main tenets for, of longevity and health. Figs may benefit the elderly by strengthening the blood and arousing vitality. Modern science affirms that the nutritional benefits of figs, they are very rich in minerals, especially potassium, iron, and calcium, and they contain omega-3 and omega-6 fatty acids. Figs also contain, um, I, I'm going to struggle with this word a little bit, vitos, oh man, vitosterols? I, I should have looked that up. Whatever they are, they inhibit the absorption of dietary cholesterol and thus decrease the total levels of cholesterol. Moreover, they may help prevent certain types of cancers. The um, word for pomegranates is rimon. It's a fruit which is characterized by the multiple little seeds it has inside of it, and therefore reminds us to perform multiple good deeds. Pomegranate is a very beautiful and majestic fruit, even has a crown. It corresponds to the Hebrew word hod, which means majesty and glory. Hod is also re related to the Hebrew word todah, which means thank you. It also could mean recognition. According to Rabbi Yitzchak Ginsburg, hod corresponds to our immune system. A healthy immune system is able to recognize our friends from our foes, and pomegranates boast our immune system. Pomegranate seed oil causes cancer cells to self-destruct. The juice of the fruit is toxic to most cancer cells, yet has almost no effect on healthy cells. Pomegranate juice has also been proven to decrease heart disease by decreasing LDL, which is the bad cholesterol, and increase HDL, which is the good cholesterol. The word for olive in Hebrew is zait. The olive is known for its various usages other than food, such as cooking, medicine, and lighting. The olive tree can live and thrive for centuries and even longer. In Jerusalem, there are olive trees that go back to the very first century. Can you believe that? And because of that, it represents wisdom and experience. Olive oil corresponds to yesod, which is foundation another of the seafruit. Olive oil is the foundation of most of the Mediterranean foods. 
Maimonides explains that the olive oil cleanses the liver and loosens stools. Drinking a teaspoon of olive oil every morning before eating can prevent stones in the urinary tract. Olive oil protects against heart disease by lowering blood pressure and has strong antibacterial properties. It also contains several antioxidants that fight cancer. Thus, olive oil can truly be called the foundation, the yesod of life. The Hebrew word for date is tamar. The only species that is not mentioned by its name, but rather mentioned as honey, which refers to the honey that is made from the fruit. In Hebrew, that is called silin, I'm sorry, silan. The date tree, or more commonly known as the palm tree, grows tall and straight without spreading to the sides of other trees, and therefore it represents decency and honesty. The Hebrew word, for honest and for straight line is the same, yeshar, which is also a synonym for a righteous person. Dates correspond to malkut, which means kingdom. Malkut is the channel that allows everything to manifest below. Therefore, malkut is connected with the digestive system. The Talmud teaches that dates heal intestinal difficulties or illnesses. The palm tree has no waste. Its hearts are used for prayer, lulav, the lulav, remember? Seen the lulav? Its fronds for shape, its fibers for ropes, its twigs for a sieve, its beams are for houses. Likewise, the people of Israel have no waste. They each master their own particular part of Torah, learning and perform mitzvah and charitable deeds. The number seven, as there are seven species, has special significance in Judaism. This number represents completeness, as can be found in the seven days of the week and the seven-lamp menorah of the temple, for example. If you go back to the verses of Deuteronomy and have a closer look, you will discover something fascinating. The word land, eretz, in Hebrew, appears seven times in the verses that speak about the virtues of the land of Israel. The Torah's mention of the seven species is not incidental. Rather, these foods are central to a Jewish spiritual path that endeavors to elevate the physical through intentional living. Eating the seven species is a conscious way you can promote your own well-being. It helps you connect to the land of Israel, and it deepens your relationships with God. Each of the seven species contains deep lessons about God and our spiritual lives. Every time we eat them, we have the opportunity to tune into their spiritual messages, eat consciously, and bring a world, step, a world a step closer to its perfected state. This um, prayer called the Shehekyanu, which is the blessings for the fruit, in general, it is appropriate and common to thank God by reciting a blessing but prior to eating this fruit as it is joyous and is a joyous and happy occasion. And this blessing is Baruch Atah Adonai Melech Ha'alam Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech Ha'alam Borei Peri Ha'aitz which means blessed are you O God blessed are you O God King of the Universe who creates the fruit of the tree. 
There are several other things that go on on this particular holiday. Um, they, we have what's known as celebrating and remembering loved ones during Tu Bishvat. There are special ways to uh, instructions on funerals and Shiva. And I'm running out of time, so I'm not going to have time to cover all that. But, uh, but I will do this. Let's, let's finish with this. Over the past 13 year, 113 years, it has been the primary focus to plant trees in the land of Israel to help green the lands. One of the Jewish national fund's founding principles is to preserve and green the land of Israel. During this time, the Jewish National Fund has led the way planting over 250 million trees and creating and building over 240 reservoirs and dams, developing over 250,000 acres of land, and establishing more than 2,000 parks. In conclusion, Tu B'Shavat is one of four new years mentioned in the Mishnah for the nation of Israel. On this date, the nation thanks God for the blessing of the trees that provide food and sustenance and the land that provides the foundation for sustaining life. Without God's creation of the planet Earth, there would be no man, and as such, we would not be. Let us remember this, and on the 15th of Shabbat, take time to thank God and the blessing of his creation. All right, so Shabbat Shalom. Let's, let's, let's close with a prayer. Alvinu Malkinu, our Father, our King. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this glorious day. Thank you for, um, for bringing us here to your house on your day. Father, be with us as we go through the service. Draw us near to you. May our hearts and our minds be, be open, and may your wisdom touch us. And may we, in our daily lives, show you and us in everything that we do. In Yeshua's name I pray. Amen.